Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12 will be our sermon text for this morning. And uh, before we read that together, let's pray one more time. Our Father, we come to you to hear your word. Uh, we want to know your truth. We want to know, most of all, uh, your son Jesus as he is revealed to us in the scriptures. And so we, we pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would give us uh, open hearts, open uh, minds to receive what you have to say to us. We pray that you would teach us and grant us faith that we might believe uh, what we hear and what we read And we pray that by your spirit you would use that to uh, remake us after the image of Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Who are you? What is your identity? Is it as a parent or a child, a husband or a wife, a student or a teacher? Uh, All of those are important callings, of course. Uh, They make up a part of who we are, but they are also transient roles. Who are you? And what difference does it make? Uh, Why is it important to know who we are in life? How much do you think who you are drives what you do? Better, how much do you think who you think you are drives what you do? What is the relationship between being and doing? Um, When we come to Christ, we become a part of something new, something radically different than anything we have ever been a part of. But often our lives do not change to reflect that. We continue to struggle. We continue to struggle with patterns of sin. We fight. We we pray. We read our Bible. Uh, Maybe the big sins we overcome, but often our lives remain pretty much the same. 
I think part of that is our old identities remain deeply ingrained. And part of it is that we do not get the radical nature of this something new. We think the gospel is believe in Jesus and your sins will be forgiven, which is true, but incomplete. We think the gospel is about me as an individual relating to the Father through Jesus, which again is true, but incomplete. Peter gives us a bigger view this morning, a more expansive view of the Christian life, and it is centered actually on the identity of the church. And it's this identity of the church, not your identity as an individual, but your identity as a member of this communal body that Peter says must shape the way we live day to day. Now, that doesn't mean we all become cogs in a machine. We don't, we don't lose our individual identities, but our individual identities are grounded in something bigger than ourselves. And there are really uh, two key principles at work here that I want to state up front. And uh, the first is the church is who she is because of her relationship to Jesus. The church is who she is because of her relationship to Jesus. And second, the church does what she does because she is who she is. Okay, so the church is who she is because of her relationship to Jesus, and the church does what she does because she is who she is. And we'll see these play out uh, in our text this morning as we see that as we come to Jesus, we become a royal priesthood to embody grace in the way we live in the world. So those will be our, our three points. You can see that on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along there or a place to take notes. The three points are come to Jesus, become a priesthood, and embody grace. First, come to Jesus. We tend uh, at times to be uncomfortable with both the uniqueness and the exclusivity of Jesus. Uh, You may think that's uh, not true, but here's what I mean. Peter essentially says here, your entire destiny depends on your response to this one man. Deciding whether to follow Jesus is not like deciding what color to paint your living room. It's more important than deciding what college to go to or who to vote for or who to marry. In fact, there is no more important decision one must make. Here's what Peter says. Look at verses 4 to 6. He says, As you come to him, that is Jesus, the Lord mentioned in the previous verse, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter says, As you come to Jesus, your reality is altered. And there are three questions I want to ask about this. What, what, does, it, what does it mean to come? To whom are we to come, and what if we don't come? So first, what does it mean to come? What is Peter talking about? Well, in a sense, this is very simple. Peter uses the phrase, come to him, in verse 4. But he uses the phrase, believe in him, in verse 6. And he uses them pretty much as as synonyms. To come to Jesus is to believe in him. Uh, But really, this just pushes the question back one step, because then we can ask the question, okay, so what does it mean to believe in him? To believe in Jesus in Scripture is not merely knowing that he existed. 
Belief in Jesus as a historical figure is part of what Scripture means by believe, but it's not all. One must know that Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve to die and then rose from the dead on the third day. One must know that and believe that and confess that is true, but one must also trust in it. It's one thing to know that Jesus died for sin. It's one thing to acknowledge that Jesus died for sin, but it's another thing to trust that Jesus died for my sin. So what does it mean to come to Jesus? It means to look at Jesus, to believe he is who he said he is, and to trust his work to remove my sin and make me whole. To come to Jesus and believe in him is to say to him, uh, my life is in your hands. I trust you. I trust your saving work. I trust your dying and your rising. And I trust that your dying and your rising means my forgiveness and newness of life. So first, we need to come to him. What, is, what does it mean then? Uh, what, who, who are we to come to? Who is this one to whom we are to come? Who is this one in whom we are to believe, to place our trust, our lives, our hope? Peter says he is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, the stone metaphor uh, comes from the Old Testament. It comes from passages like Isaiah 8, Isaiah 28, Psalm 118. They all talk about this stone, and Peter actually quotes all of them in this short passage. He quotes Isaiah 28 and verse 6 when he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See, God had promised one who would come, way back in the book of Isaiah, one who would come who would act as a foundation for the people of God. Uh, The the context is many in Israel, even the leaders, had been trusting in lies. But God would set up one who would be righteous and just, who would do away with all the lies. One who would not just restore the foundation of the people of God, but one who himself would become the foundation of the people of God. And Jesus is that cornerstone, says Peter. And yet not everyone in Israel would accept this stone. So Peter quotes Psalm 118 in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, if you turn to Psalm 118, the context there is is, uh, someone who was facing enemies among the nations, possibly, probably Israel's king, who apparently had been rejected even by some among his own people. Nevertheless, God saved him and exalted him. Hence, the stone that the builders rejected, even some of the leaders of Israel, had become the cornerstone. Now, put differently, the one whom the leaders in Israel reject, God has exalted to the place of supreme authority. That's what that passage is getting at. Well, you might ask, well, how did this happen? Right? What, what does this have to do with Jesus? How did Jesus, though rejected by Israel, become the foundation stone for Israel? How do we know that Jesus is really the, the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promise here? Well, for starters, because Jesus did come to his own. He came to his own, he came to his own people, and they did not receive him. He was despised and rejected by men. The leaders of Israel were jealous of him, so they sought to have him arrested and killed, and it worked. He was arrested and killed. They conspired with one another, they worked with Pontius Pilate, and they had Jesus put to death. The stone the builders rejected. But the father exalted Jesus in the resurrection. Jesus didn't stay dead, but rose from the dead, as the apostles said, giving their eyewitness testimony 
to the resurrected Jesus. You know, apart from the resurrection, Jesus is just another failed pretender, another false Messiah. But the resurrection, the resurrection changes everything. In the sight of God, Jesus was chosen and precious. So the father did not abandon his son, but raised him from the dead. This is why Peter calls Jesus a living stone. The Old Testament texts don't use that phrase. They talk about a stone, a cornerstone, but not a living stone. But Peter has to make clear that we have a living hope through a living word in a living Savior. And this is, of course, why we can come to him. This is why we can trust him. Jesus, the living stone, has conquered death. And so... To whom are we to come? We're to come to Jesus. What if we don't come? Some still don't want to come to Jesus. It's all well and good for you, people say, but, you know, it's not my thing. Jesus was a fine teacher and all, but there are lots of fine teachers, others say. But if Jesus has really risen from the dead, then he has fulfilled the promise of the Father, which means the Father has made him Lord and Christ, the foundation of the restored Israel. Meaning that he, Jesus, has all authority in heaven on earth, as he himself said after his resurrection. And so Jesus is not just a nice teacher. He's not just good for me. He has authority over you and me and all things. Jesus is the foundation of God's restored Israel, his restored people. To believe in him is to understand what God is doing in the world. And to reject him, Peter says, quoting Isaiah 8... In verse 8, to reject Jesus is, means he will become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Uh, now, we need to be clear, in that passage in Isaiah 8, it's actually the Lord of hosts who is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. And the moment Peter applies that verse to Jesus, someone Peter had walked and talked with, ate and drank with for three years, Peter is saying that this person, Jesus, the Messiah, is the Lord of hosts is Yahweh, is God. And you can see why this might cause people to stumble. This man is God? And that was certainly offensive to the Jews in Jesus' day. And yet many continue to stumble over Jesus today to accept, right, to accept the exclusivity of Jesus, that this one man who lived and died and rose 2,000 years ago, to accept that he is God, that he is the Lord, that he is our Savior, to believe that he alone has all authority in heaven on earth, to trust in his death and his resurrection as the means of being saved from sin and reconciled to the Father, it's a bit hard to believe for some. And I get it. But let me say as clearly as I can that this one person, as Peter says, and your reaction to this one person will set the course of your life. And will determine your destiny. No other decision you have to make in life is so important. And so let me encourage you to come to him. To come to Jesus. To believe in him. To put your trust in him. And if you're still uncertain. If you're still wrestling. If you're still wondering who Jesus is. And and is all that we say about him true. Well let's talk. So first come to Jesus. Second, as we come to Jesus, we become a royal priesthood. Again, what is the the purpose of your life? 
What gives meaning to your life? If, if you have a before Christ life and an after Christ life, how did that change? Sometimes we present the gospel in such a way that it doesn't change. Right? The gospel is simply forgiveness by faith. Now, again, the gospel does include forgiveness by faith. Don't get me wrong. Central to the gospel is that we are declared righteous by faith in Christ because of his blood. And yet, we need to say the gospel is bigger than that. Sometimes Christians give the impression that Christianity is like fire insurance. Right? If you just trust in Jesus, you, you don't have to go to heaven when you die. Or you get to go to heaven when you die. You don't have to go to hell when you die. Very important distinction. And we think, once you've got that squared away, you can go on living your life as you always have. We think being saved from sin only means being saved from the eternal consequences of sin and nothing more. But coming to Christ changes everything. Remember, the church is who she is because of her relationship to Jesus. And so Jesus is a living stone, verse 4 says, and we become living stones, verse 5 says. Jesus was rejected by men, verse 4, we will be rejected by men, verse 12. Jesus was chosen and precious in the sight of the Father, verses 4 and 6. We are chosen and precious in the sight of the Father, verse 9. Jesus received honor by becoming the cornerstone, verse 7. We too will receive honor as we believe in him. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and prophecies. And we see that throughout 1 Peter, really, but especially in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Well, the church is actually the continuation of the Old Testament people of God as seen in the many names that Peter gives to her. And this is the significance of many of these names, right? What, what are they? Well, who is the church because of a relationship to Jesus? Let me just highlight three things. First, the church is the, the New Testament people of God. Uh, in verse 9, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What is the significance of this, this pile of names, right? Because Peter just piles them on, one after another after another. Well, they come from Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 is a significant chapter in the Old Testament because it's the chapter that begins the giving of the Mosaic Covenant uh, in the constituting of Israel as the people of God. Or God had brought them out of Egypt, but now he was going to make it official. The, the prince had saved the damsel in distress, but Exodus 19 begins the wedding day. And so Peter takes this language that applies to Israel becoming the unique people of God, and he applies it to the church. We are the people of God. Not that the church has replaced Israel. Sometimes people read it like that. I don't think that's the case. It's that the church is Israel. Uh, the, the cornerstone Isaiah saw would be the foundation of the restored Israel. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to restore Israel. But the mystery of the gospel, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 3.6, is that the Gentiles can now be a part of Israel. So we are Israel, and our Jewish Messiah reigns over us. And verse 10 confirms this. Uh, verse 10, Peter says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those words are from the prophet Hosea. They were meant to comfort Israel that God would take them back, restore them to himself. Well, the church is the remnant of Israel restored to the Father through Jesus. Put more simply, the church is the people of God. The church is not only the New Testament people, the church is also the New Testament temple. Peter says in verses 4 to 5, As you come to him, a living stone, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, this, this may be less clear than it actually seems. I don't want to make it unclear for you, but the, the word house can actually mean at least three different things. Uh, in, in the New Testament. It can refer to a home. That's, that's the easy one, right? Uh, it can also refer to a household, whether a small, like the household of Zechariah, or large, like the house of Israel. Uh, or it can refer to the house or the temple of God. And so here it can refer to a spiritual household. We are being built up into a spiritual household or to a spiritual house, spiritual temple. Really, no matter what, as you read through this verse, Peter begins with stones in verse 5, and he ends with priests. (laughs) And so he's mixing his metaphors a little bit here. And actually, Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 2, where the household of God is built on a foundation, which becomes the temple. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says, So then you, meaning you Gentiles there in Ephesians 2, So then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints, with the Jews, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I think what we're to understand by this is, in the Old Testament, the household of Israel and the house of God were distinct. The one was a people, the other was a building. But in the New Testament, the two become one. The people are the temple. And the significance of this, of course, is that God's Spirit dwells in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Which means both that we have an intimacy with God as a people wherever we gather. Because wherever we gather, there is God's temple. Wherever we gather, there God meets with us. And that when people gather with the people of God, they come into the presence of God. As mysterious and amazing as that is. And so the church is the New Testament people of God and the New Testament temple. Because God's spirit dwells in us. Finally, the church is the New Testament priesthood. This is mentioned twice in verses 5 and 9, and so it's clearly important to Peter, and we'll see that it actually gives birth to the church's role in the world. The church as a whole, as a, as a corporate body, is a priesthood. You are priests in God's house. What does it mean to be a priest? Well, the priests had an, an, inti- an intimacy with God that not everyone had. Right? They had access to God. They could come into the temple, even into the holy place, The place of communion, the place of table fellowship and prayer and glory. Priests had intimacy and priests offered sacrifices. They offered sacrifices to God often on behalf of others. So you are God's priesthood. A holy priesthood, which means you're set apart. A royal priesthood, which means you have a status in God's house. 
of royalty. You're, you're not nobodies, right? You are princes and princesses in the house of God. And, and that would be important for Peter's readers. Remember, they were suffering and they were persecuted. Peter says in verse 11 that they are sojourners and exiles, which probably has as much to say about the way that they were treated and despised and shunned as Christians as it says anything else. Peter says in verse 12 that people spoke against them. And so they need to know their royal status in God's house, especially when they have no status in the world. Because of Jesus, you are God's people. You are God's temple. You are God's priesthood. And, and I should note, these are all corporate categories, meaning the emphasis in Scripture is not, uh, at, at least here, on the fact that you as an individual are God's person, but that we are God's people. Not that God's Spirit dwells in you as an individual, though that is true, but the emphasis throughout the New Testament is that God's Spirit dwells in us as the church. It's almost always plural. The emphasis here is, is not on our individual status as priests so much as our corporate status as a priesthood. So, so y'all, y'all are God's people. Y'all are God's temple. Y'all are God's priesthood. So first we come to Jesus. Second, we become a priesthood. Finally, as we come to Jesus, we become a royal priesthood to embody grace in the way that we live in the world. This identity as God's people, temple, priesthood ought to shape the way that we live in the world. Remember the two principles that I stated at the start, that the church is who she is because of her relationship to Jesus, and the church does what she does because she is who she is. When you become a Christian, you, you now have a, a role, a function in the world that you did not have before. And it affects everything. Right? That role, that function is not simply come to church on Sunday mornings, but it is live your life as a holy priesthood of God. Peter talks about it as spiritual sacrifices in verse 5, proclaiming God's excellencies in verse 9, doing good in verse 12. I actually think Peter's talking about the same thing in each of those places, but from slightly different angles. He's trying to get at what it is uh, that we are a royal priesthood, how it is that we are to live as that priesthood in the world. And so let me, let me put it like this. Here's your calling as a holy priesthood. Offer yourself before a watching world for God's glory. As a priesthood, first offer yourself. Right In the Old Testament, the priests offered sacrifices on behalf of people. And there were different kinds of sacrifices. Many of them involved blood and, and death and the death of an animal substitute. These sacrifices pointed forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. He shed his blood in our place. He bore our sin in his body, as Peter will say. But there were other sacrifices in the Old Testament as well. There were, there were grain offerings, for example. Uh, these were a way of symbolically offering your life to God. There were thank offerings, which are what they sound like, right? They were a way of displaying thanks to God. And as God's priests, we are still called to offer sacrifices. The way of worshiping our Father has not fundamentally changed, and yet it is different. Paul puts it like this in Romans 12.1, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So our offering, our sacrifice to our Father, is that we offer ourselves to Him every day. This is our spiritual sacrifice, and it is acceptable to God through Jesus, Peter says. 
You might think, why would God want me? I mean, what do I have to offer after all? Well, Peter tells us God does want you. And he finds the offering of your life to him acceptable through Jesus. You are a holy priesthood. Offer yourself, your life, to your Father every day. Offer your, your words and your hands, your work, your time, your money, your talents, whatever you find yourself doing, do it as an offering to your Father. If you can't do your work as an offering to your Father, then, well, it's probably work that you shouldn't be doing. Right? So if you prepare a meal for your family, offer yourself to your Father in that. That is your priestly service to the Lord as you offer yourself to your Father by preparing a meal for your family. Uh, if you design buildings for others to live in, offer yourself to your Father in that. That is your priestly service to the Lord. If you're a student and, and, and you study to learn, offer yourself to your Father in that. Do that unto the Lord. That is your priestly service to the Lord. Uh, Paul says to the Philippians that the gifts that they sent to him were a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. They gave themselves to Paul, to Paul's work. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And sharing is, is not just a nice thing to do, the writer of Hebrews says. It's our priestly work as we offer ourselves to God by sharing what we have with others. We are God's priesthood. We are called to offer ourselves to Him in whatever we do. And we do that before a watching world. Now, we may say more about uh, the last two verses next week because we can't unpack everything in verses 11 and 12 right now. But for now, just notice that the church is to do good in such a way that the world might see. Peter is here just echoing Jesus when he says in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Notice Peter expects... The church to be involved with non-Christians. Peter calls the church not to avoid the world, but to be upright in the world. And you may think, well, that's all fine and good, but, but no one is watching me. Nobody cares the way I live. But you know, both Peter and Jesus say, let your light shine so others might see. And I think whether you realize it or not, if other people see you at all on a day-to-day -day basis, they notice your behavior. They may not say they notice, they may pretend not to notice, but by God's grace, and by his power and his spirit, they will notice, right? And so don't discount what God might do through you simply living for him in the world. God can use that to his glory. Peter says, keep your conduct honorable. Jesus said, let your light shine before men so the world might see God at work in you. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect, of course, uh, but it does mean being humble when you fail, being willing to say you're sorry, striving to make things right. That, too, is part of God's work in you. As we stumble through life, seeking forgiveness, asking for mercy, striving to make things right. And, of course, we do all that for God's glory. We shouldn't want people to see us in order to notice us. That's not what Peter or what Jesus was saying. We want people to see, according to verse 12, and glorify God on the day of visitation. As Jesus put it, to see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Or put it differently, we, we don't want to proclaim our greatness by our works, but God's 
as Peter says in verse 19. And there are other New Testament passages that talk about our spiritual sacrifices in this way, our offering ourselves in this way. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. See, our goal in life should be to proclaim the excellencies of God, right? That is to declare how great our God is, that this God who called us from darkness to light, this God who, who made us a people, a temple, a priesthood, once we are struck with his amazing grace, that grace should be our joy and delight. We shouldn't be able to keep it in. Now, it's interesting, uh, in verse 9, commentators have argued about whether proclaiming God's excellencies means worship or evangelism. In other words, to whom are we proclaiming? To God or to those who don't know God? But I actually think we don't have to decide there. I don't think it's an either or. I think the point is we delight in God, and so we talk about him whenever we can. The point is the delight of God in our hearts becomes the praise of God on our lips, whether to God or to those who don't yet know him. The end result is, of course, that whatever we do, in word or in deed, we do it before others that God might be glorified. That's the goal. That is our priestly work. If you have come to Christ, you are a part of a holy priesthood. Offer yourself to your Father before the world that his greatness might be known. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you that he is the living stone that the builders rejected, but you have exalted to become the capstone. And we thank you that in him we find, uh, yes, the forgiveness of sins, justification by faith, but we also become a new people, your temple, your priests, that we might serve and glorify you in the world. Father, help us to do that by your Spirit, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.